Welcome to another exciting episode of The NIDS View, a weekly show of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we are advancing peace, promoting stability, and helping you to think deterrence. Each week, we discuss and analyze a recent topic and provide insight into how it affects our national deterrence. We hope you enjoy this show. Welcome to a great episode in our newly named The NIDS View. It used to be The Nuclear View, but now it's The NIDS View because we are developing The NIDS Podcast Network, which includes not only The NIDS View, it's got NIDS Knowledge, which was formerly Nuclear Knowledge, because we talk about topics that are not necessarily solely nuclear. And of course, we've got Real Space Strategy with Chris Stone. Chris Stone is a senior fellow of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. And who knows what podcast we may come up with next. So we decided to broaden our the name of the podcast to make it better fit the many topics we talk about. And so, of course, we are now officially The Nids View. Curtis? So, Adam, are we going to be adding like uh, NIDS Sports Network and uh, NIDS uh, clothing line as far you know, the fashion review and that kind of stuff? Marketing, marketing, marketing. <laughs> well, what I'm hoping is that we can have a, a podcast that, of course, I will host that will focus on the Alabama football program, a perennial national champion. And so I think uh, if you love nuclear weapons, you obviously love winning. And so how could you also not love the Alabama Crimson Tide? So that's what I was thinking for our next podcast, but we'll have to talk about that offline. Uh, but let's talk, turn, you know, let's sort of turn to the topic, of course, as always, Jim Petrosky, Curtis McGiffin joining me. And today we thought we were going to have a guest uh, that we'll, I'll save in just in case we don't, we don't get her, but we were going to have a guest, and then we've got to delay that very special guest. So instead, we decided to talk about a recent article published in War on the Rocks, Canceling the New Sea Launch Nuclear Cruise Missile is the Right Move by David W. Kern, who is a fellow at the uh, Project on Managing the Atom and the International Security Program at Harvard's Kennedy School and he is also an associate professor of government and politics at St. John's University in New York. And, of course, his argument, much like the title, is essentially an argument in which he says that this desire to keep Silicon in the, you know, the sea launch cruise missile nuclear, is a bad idea and that the arguments by Republicans in Congress who have been you know, the primary proponents of it is one that doesn't stand the logical test. Now, Curtis has said, as we were discussing this previously before the show started, that, you know, it was a persuasive argument. I, of course, did not find it persuasive. And I thought, like most arguments I read, particularly those uh, written by advocates of nuclear disarmament and arms control is they make broad assertions without, 
you know, any real empirical support behind them. And maybe that's the nature of deterrence because we don't have a lot of case studies. We, you know, we don't do quantitative analysis because there's just not enough of it. And so I thought that his argument, essentially he says, uh, however, and I'm quoting, however, the deterrence and reassurance benefits of a sea launched nuclear cruise missile are vastly overstated and may actually undermine the ability of the United States to deter adversaries by diverting scarce resources away from investments in more useful conventional platforms and munitions. And this is one of his big arguments was that we need to not spend the $10 billion ish on this weapon and instead spend $10 billion to buy additional conventional capability, which could be uh, a p- potentially three F-35s, or it could be <laughs> half of a, of a destroyer. Uh, that's that's essentially what $10 billion buys these days. But before I go on and talk about his argument, Curtis, I wanted to, to throw it open to you because you were the one who was fooled by this this argument. So let, let, let me hear why you thought it was potentially compelling. Well, I don't know if I can agree that I'm fooled by it. Um, well, thank you, Adam and, and Jim. Always good to see you. Uh, and I'm glad to be back. I'm sorry I missed last week. I am still fighting off this cold. So if I sound a little more sultry, uh, just get a hold of yourselves. Uh, I'll be much better next week. All right. So uh, <laughs> what was I thinking about this? Um, you know, essentially, uh, what I found somewhat persuasive only fits in the idea if we are talking about Slickham N as being uh, something like a refurbished T-Land man or Tomahawk land attack cruise missile nuclear, which was re- uh, essentially retired uh, under the Obama administration back in uh, uh, 2011. Uh, but these were systems that were essentially pulled off the ships and submarines in 1991 by President Bush, 41, um, as the uh, as the Soviet Union collapsed and uh, and uh, peace was breaking out all over the world that we thought would would be permanent and would never ever uh, have the need for these kinds of capabilities again. Uh, and so I I would argue that if the his I've not really seen Adam I'll be honest with you I've not really seen um, a real definition of what Slickham N would be. I've always envisioned it to be sort of a refurbished TLAM N, you know, maybe a, some new paint and uh, maybe a better uh, navigation system with fix up the engines. Uh, but it's essentially a Tomahawk missile um, with its old warhead and, um, and some, some, some new, you know, capability to make it a little bit more survivable uh, in this more complex environment. Now I could be totally wrong uh, on that. And maybe I am. Uh, in which case my argument's pretty useless here. But if I'm right, okay, there were only 367 TLAM ends uh, ever made anyway. Uh, and if we're talking $10 billion for 367 missiles, it's kind of, you get more bang for your buck if we just invest that in more LRSOs, long range strike options uh, that we would put on the bombers, this more stealthier uh, capable missile um, that would of course be um, uh, from the air. Uh, although, I would I would argue maybe making a ground launch version of that, uh, maybe what the Slickham or I'm sorry, surface launched or submarine launched version of that 
might also be the Slicka Man. I'm not sure we know this because we're just barely investing a few million dollars and just trying to figure out the concept of what it might be. But uh, but Professor Kearney's already, you know, dismissing um, this capability as being, um, you know, nothing more than noise that gets in the way of the real weapons, the ones we want to use, the real combat killing weapons. Um, that is the conventional capability that uh, we might actually have. And I'm as a peace guy. Um, I kind of want to spend money on weapons that prevent war, not the ones that actually prosecute them. Well, so, you know, from my understanding of it, Slickamen will be a variant of LRSO in much the same fashion that, you know, if you were going to have a Glickum or anything of that sort, you would have, you you know, you've had air launch uh, tomahawks, you've had... You know, you've had them off of ships, you, you know, it's so LRSO is my understanding of what would be slick them in. And of course, like you, I, I would like to see click them as well. But the, the challenge as I see it is he sets up a lot of, you know, a lot of sort of wrong arguments. So, for example, this we certainly know with both China and Russia that part of the reason that they're going nuclear is that they don't think they can necessarily match American air power and conventional capability. So therefore, they're looking to nukes, and the Russians are doing this even more so than the Chinese. And so this idea that what we're going to do is we're going to buy a bunch more capability, which you can't buy enough conventional capability. You just, especially with $10 billion, I mean, I sort of say ingest it'll buy three F-35s, but $10 billion doesn't buy much. I mean, if you look at the acquisition budget, it's, you know, it's very expensive to buy conventional capability. You know, we're going to buy more of what scares them the most to then further drive them into the nuclear camp. So that's a wrong-headed argument. And then he goes on and he says things like, you know, he says, well, um, we, we wouldn't attack... Uh, the mainland China with slick them in anyway. So therefore it's irrelevant. And, and it's right. like, well, why, where did you come up with that? That was, this is the problem with armchair generals who really have no sort of knowledge of how we actually think about war fighting is that was, it's sort of like, huh, where'd that come from? That was never the plan to begin with, but they're awfully useful against, uh, you know, Sea bay, you know, at sea assets, I could easily see uh, Slickamen being useful against uh, Chinese assets in the South China Sea, for example. I mean, there's a whole range of of ways that these are useful without striking mainland China, because that's whether it be Slickamen, the you know whether it's SSBN, you know W seventy six two ICBMs. <laughs> Or LRSO, we're, we're not going to be striking mainland China with nuclear weapons. We're going to keep this fight at sea as best we can. So, uh, yeah, and let me let me just ask before Jim jumps in here, just add it, add to that uh, by adding conventional military. Let's uh, you know, it is it take it is much more expensive. It takes just as long amount of time to build any of this stuff. And then you've got to staff it. We can't meet recruiting goals today. How would we meet recruiting goals for, uh, you know, uh, you know, another, you know, a half dozen ships or however you might get for for ten billion dollars? Uh, these are challenges that I think we have to think through uh, um, as we think about 
enhanced conventional capability and what that really means. Yeah. Jim. Yeah. Well, I just was enjoying the, the back and forth between the two of you. It continued right from our, uh, uh, pre- preparations of the show right into the show. And I figured when we're done, you guys can duke it out. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah. So I focused a little differently. I didn't try to go back and re-engineer what Slickamen was going to be and how it was operated, but I, I really focused on this article and some of the deterrence arguments that again, are arguments made on an initial false pretense and then a step in the wrong direction uh, one of the areas it says, you know, estimating the deterrent effect of a specific action on an adversary's decision making is inherently speculatory. Speculatory, and if you've ever sat through any of Curtis's or Adams' deterrence talks, it's always speculatory because it's your impression of what your adversary's impression is going to be of your impression. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so it's always going to be speculatory. And if we use that as the rationale for for opening or purchasing any new system. Uh, we would never do anything. We'd be stymied. And it goes in further then to make, to start with that assumption that it's speculatory as though we should always purchase an item that we know exactly what's going to be used in the future and how it's going to be used with a dynamic adversary, which is my second issue that Adam sort of pointed to. And that is that even if today, and I don't think it is, I'm not part of that, that community, uh, but even if today, if the only thought of using this weapon is to fight in mainland China and suddenly China is at sea, as Adam says, and we decide to change our minds, we're not going to go back during that process and build a bunch of slick amends. We'd have that capability on the ground for a fairly low cost and in a fairly effective measure. And so that side of the argument's completely lost as though, you know, I would have loved to see this article written with both sides of the argument in it. And they're not there. It's very, very one-sided. Obviously, the writer does not want us to invest in a slick amend. And I'm not sure what the trade-off in conventional weapons are because conventional weapons do not deter the use of nuclear weapons. At least we don't think so from all the studies that we've done. It's very hard. Yeah, it's uh, good that you mentioned that because uh, myself and James McHugh and a, one of our other fellow authors, we you know we have an article in a previous recent issue of Ether, the Air Force's professional journal, in which we do just that and we make the calculations and trade offs between nuclear and conventional capabilities, and even doing it in a sort of a long format, uh, it's it's a hard one. You know, it's a hard, it's, it's certainly not an easy one to do. And, and it's just, I mean, are they really, are the arms control advocates really sure that they want to double or triple the defense budget to get this conventional capability that they think that we need? Or are they just essentially saying, have the, you need more conventional, but don't fund it and just have none of it. Cause that's what I think right. they actually want. Well, I'm going to reference and uh, piggyback on Jim's uh, argument as well here, uh, just to read from the article here. Uh, he says, a, a Chinese leadership may contemplate using tactical or theater nuclear weapons to avoid a potentially catastrophic outcome. Well, that's what the Russians call or what we used to call the Russian doctrine of escalate to deescalate, right? Uh, but under these conditions, it is difficult to see how the presence of U.S. tactical nuclear region weapons in the region would necessarily 
prove decisive in shaping China's calculation. I mean, this hyperbole here of uh, certainly it would change the calculation. That's the whole idea. The risk of an in-kind response, one that does not escalate, but also does not undermine and and impress advantage uh, towards uh, the Chinese uh, is exactly what you need. And a a weapon of this sort, a, whether it's a Slickham N or more LRSOs, which are, by the way, uh, treaty agnostic, they're not counted in the treaty numbers, which means this is all, f- you know, free chicken in the in the treaty counts, um, provides you a lot more capability hey, um, well, in 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 arguing against, if you will, um, their potential issue. Let me move on here. What, what treaty are you so talking says, about? Because we don't have an arms control treaty. Oh, oh, oh. Well, you know that the treaty that we're in all by ourselves called a New START treaty uh, until 2026, where we're the only <laughs> ones participating? That treaty, that's the one I'm talking about. Okay. But thank you for that. Um, and then he would say, he goes on to say here, rather than a prompt response that does not require force generation from outside the region, the United States may prefer to maintain the tempo of the conventional campaign operations and forego immediate escalation um, through, um, though it would possess the assets of the Slickham N. And what he's essentially saying here is, is that responding to their nuclear response may not be necessary. We'll just keep hammering them with the same tempo that forced them into the into the fallback position of using the nuclear weapon, right? So is that escalatory um, or not? And, and so it comes down to the idea of where is the, the strategist frame of mind? And if the goal, uh, once deterrence fails, the purpose of the nuclear capability is to manage escalation. And you can't manage escalation if you cannot have the potential risk that you place upon the adversary of an in-kind response, because that's the only thing you can do. If you don't respond in-kind, then you are either escalating vertically or horizontally, or you um, you are inadequately responding, which then may encourage the adversary to continue the same operation. I guess you know there, the the one issue that I sort of have is, you know, this idea that you know we'll continue the conventional fight. That's, I mean, that's pretty bad armchair generalship because it it fundamentally doesn't understand operations and how how the U.S. fights. You know, this is one thing I took away from my time as a professor at U.S. Army SAMS, and and you know SAMS is focused on operational strategy. Or, you know, so it's not grand strategy. And so I would submit that, you know, there's that old saying that, you know, amateurs do strategy, generals do logistics. And and I would equate that to generals do operations. And so the idea that we're just going to continue with our conventional capability, we don't have that conventional capability. And we can't Mm -hmm. buy or build it we just don't have the money to buy or build enough to continue to throw right. conventional assets into nuclear strikes. That that's, you know, and, and to his credit, I think the author is trying to tell us that he's trying to say you need, he uses the, the term uh, enhanced uh, conventional capability. I don't know what that is. And if it's something that's more than what we have, then it's going to take forever to get it right. Adam, how long did it take us to get the F 35 online? Fifth, almost 20 years. 
yeah, 15, 20 years. I mean, come on. Uh, even, uh, <clears throat> I'm pretty sure some engineers can, can put nuclear warheads inside old tomahawks a lot faster than that. What do you think, Jim? Yeah, well, that makes a good point. And, and putting them inside of tomahawks, you know, and being able to be launched by submarines uh, brings up the point that Adam brought up a couple weeks ago. And I want to highlight that here. And that is if we do have a fight with China, we've got to travel a very large distance with a lot of equipment. And one of the main advantages of nuclear weapons is the bang for your buck concept especially in the fear that it provides to your adversary. And so if we do get in a shooting war that escalates, that certainly would be a deterrent having it available as an option and a response. But you can't move conventional capability at least, uh, you know, as quickly or can have it there as readily um, as you would on a submarine. Now, Adam, you've worked with the Navy before. So am I wrong there? Well, I, I mean, no, but the, you sort of pushed me to a point I was going to make where he says, well, you know, the Slickle Man is redundant with the W76 Mod 2. And it's like, what? Mm -hmm. So what are you saying yeah. that an that a, you know, a Triton D5 is the same thing as, you know, as as an Alcom? Uh, is that what you're saying? That they're I mean, cruise missiles and ICBMs are the same? And that they're redundant with each other? Because that's essentially what we're talking about. Well, he actually argues that the Slickum N would be, could be confused by the adversary with a tomahawk and that he wouldn't know if you were launching a conventional or a nuclear. But this is the same argument we make on the Trident uh, W76-2. Yeah, I mean, this is part of just not sort of knowing the business where, yeah, you, you don't know. And you've got That's to make a decision. That's the ambiguity. You've got to make That's, a decision. That's the good yeah. thing. I mean, there's a point where I agree with him where he says, despite the sea launch cruise missiles, low yield warhead and perceived usability in a conflict, it is difficult to envision a scenario in which the United States would resort to the first use of nuclear weapons. I agree. We're not going to go first. Yep. But if we don't have That's any right. ability to respond that's a bad thing. In kind. In kind. Right. And, you know, when they start nuking our conventional capabilities. So hypothetically, because I think about this very conflict a lot. So hypothetically, if we've got two carrier strike groups moving to assist Taiwan and, you know, the Chinese are going to say they're going to send every signal for the U.S. to stay out. They're probably going to have. Uh, attacked through cyber and and space already. That's probably already going to have happen. They're going to disrupt logistics networks. They're going to do all these kinds of things first. But let's suppose we get our our capabilities out of Japan. We've got all these naval assets moving towards Taiwan. We're going to come in from the west and the south. And let's say they want to start nuking. Or let's say we've got... Uh, you know, aircraft flying out of Okinawa, we've got refuelers up and, you know, we're, we're able to, to keep that air bridge going and we're defending. And then let's say they, you know, put a low yield on Okinawa uh, or, you know, they go to Misawa or they, you know, they go to Kadena. They, there's many things they could do. The, the, this idea that we just have this conventional capability that we can keep flowing to the region or that we can build it in any 
sort of time within the next five years because she has made statements that 2027 is sort of a key year. Uh, so we're looking, you know, three and a half, you know, three years into the future. None of this is even feasible. So what you can do is you, you know, LRSO is ahead of schedule. So you can build uh, a C variant of LRSO in that time frame. And he, you know, in his conclusions, he says, uh, ultimately, the sea-launched nuclear cruise missile is an unnecessary distraction from addressing the major challenge confronting the United States and deterring unwanted action by China. Reassuring East Asian allies and supporting long-term strategic competition, the deterioration of U.S. conventional military capabilities. And, you know, he's essentially saying, you know, you got to have more conventional and you got to do more diplomatic and other stuff to assure your East Asian allies. Well, I talked to the East Asian allies and the East Asian allies care about actual real nuclear weapons. And they don't care about, you know, American talk and assurances. They want to see tangible things. Go ahead, Jim. But Adam, but Adam, this is not just an either or. All those things are still going to happen regardless whether we have multiple capabilities on the ground or not. There's going to be diplomacy. There are going to be talks. There are going to be interactions True. that way. What concerns, what concerns me is everyone's knee-jerk reaction to first use. According to this article, Beijing does not have a first use interest. (laughs) According according to this article, we don't have a first use uh, uh, policy. So therefore, if no one goes first, then nothing happens. Is that a realistic scenario that we want to look at? Or do we want to look at a change in Beijing policy and then a calculus that if you do have a first use, there will be consequences? That's that's the essence of deterrence. And I don't see that truly happening in, uh, in a way um, without having that capability on the ground in a very short order of time and in a, in a very... Um, in a, in a very unpredictable manner because it's that unpredictable manner that says, Oh, we did go first or we didn't go first. Something's coming in. Who knows what it is? So let me add to that, Jim, cause I think that's a great, uh, a great comment to add, but uh, he also talks about the issue of reassurance, right? And, uh, and the case mm. of uh, that, the, that the Slickham N is, is less compelling um, that the, Simply increasing the number of nuclear weapons in the region is not likely to have a meaningful impact on allies' perceptions of U.S. commitment to security. I I, I challenge that. Go ask the South Koreans. Uh, you know, the United States is uh, the president initially uh, put out the the, the doctrine in, in April. The SecDef was just there uh, this fall. Uh, in 2023, um, uh, I would argue that the United States is working harder to keep nuclear weapons out of South Korea than they are to get North nuclear weapons out of North Korea. There's such a fear um, that South Korea will uh, no longer be assured and will want to develop their own organic nuclear capability that we now have submarines who are, who are showing up into port into Korean South Korean ports, showing the world where they are um, as a, as a, a message of commitment to of our nuclear alliance 
Uh, and and it, it is it is surprising to me, given the fact that when we had the TLAM N at sea, um, they were very assured. Uh, it was the, the Japanese, of course, who were most upset when the TLAM N was retired uh, in the uh, early 2000s. And so this is a this is an issue of reassurance. Numbers do matter. And 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 being able to know that the capability is out there that's for me, um, then uh, that has more meaning. And if we don't, con- if we continue to ignore what the allies need to be assured, which may be a different perception than what Americans think that we should be projecting to them, um, th- it, then assurance will fail. And the, the, what happens when, when deterrence fails, it's war. When assurance fails, it's proliferation. And in this case, uh, you know, you know, nine times out of 10, I'll tell you that, you know, I'm fine with certain countries proliferating. I think South Korea is a responsible first world nation that has every right to defend itself and protect itself with what it deems necessary and that we ought to encourage and support and make sure it's safe, secure and reliable. But if we're not going to do that, then we better at least pay them the respect enough to say that we got to have the capability in theater that is meaningful to them. Well, let me make a shameless plug for my recent article in the Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs, which shameless. which was a, devoted to this very issue. I interviewed a bunch of uh, Korean military and their members of their government and others. And so the I can tell you with absolute certainty what the, the UN administration and many within the military and elsewhere feel about that, which is in the article. And, you know, there's a a strong and growing desire, even among those in the center and moving to the political left of, hey, we very well may need our own capability because for the Koreans in particular and the Japanese as well, there is a concern that if there's a shooting war, that American capability is going to be totally devoted to that conflict. And the South Koreans feel they'll be sort of left to fend for themselves and that this will be the opportunity the North Koreans have been waiting for. And then the Japanese have, you know, similar views. And so this idea that, uh, you know, we have enough capability that, you know, Trident D5s can do everything that's needed. It's they're not all nuclear weapons. And this is sort of the the disarmament crowd's mistaken view is Autocrats don't see all nuclear weapons as the same. They they see them different. That's correct. They see a, a you know a short range nuclear weapon with a low yield or ultra low yield is very different from a you know four hundred plus kiloton SLBM or a hundred and seventy five kiloton ICBM or you know anything of the sort. They're all nuclear weapons are not the same. And so this sort of view that if you got a few and then that's plenty and it'll all work itself out. And if we just make lots of promises that it'll all be fine. And, and, you know, let's just build a whole bunch of more stuff, which we can't really fund because, you know, the very same people who want to, you know, disarm nuclear, they're, they're not in the next breath saying, you know, double the defense budget, build the, you know, what they're doing is they're advocating for social programs and other and climate, you know, climate mitigation spending. And, and, you know, they want, you know, the $4 billion for EV chargers that have been spent in the last two and a half years, but we've never seen a single charger actually built. They want all that. They don't, you know, they don't 
advocate for more conventional spending. And so it's, you know, the argument just falls flat on its face. So Adam, I, I'm I'm not I've not read that your article because I'm not smart enough to know how to find it out there in the uh, internet. You've not been kind enough to send it to me. Can you tell me if uh, if um, do, do the allies that you interviewed do they they may question the capability or lack thereof? Do they question the credibility? Do they actually think that America will or will not use a nuclear weapon in their defense? Um, that is a very good question, and there is I'm not sure that. The Koreans, you know, and it's it's always interesting when you talk because they they sort of you know they know you're an American. They they're very polite they, to you, yes. You know, so but there are there are the you know the more forthright folks would say you know we do question whether you would actually defend us and whether you would trade Seoul for Washington. They absolutely I think question that's the real issue. They absolutely question <clears throat> that, and and I would not say we're talking about proliferation. We're talking about nuclear participation. I think this is a, a terminology you coined, Curtis, and that or Jim. Me? Maybe no, it was Jim. Uh, James, Jim, G- yeah. Jim. Okay, I don't get credit for anything. I would love to take credit. For okay, that, so that was that's all, Jim. So, Jim, you, to to your point that you made earlier uh, on a previous episode, this is where I remember this from: is w- the South Koreans and the Japanese would be participants in sort of this Western nuclear shield, they wouldn't be proliferators. That has a negative connotation. They're participants. Correct. That's right. That's right. Change the words and and now it's good. All right. We got to write that article. Yep, we do. So, so we about ready to close this out, Adam. Yeah. I think we about ready to wrap this up. So I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a different kind of a comment than I have in the past uh, about this to our audience. They listen to us discussing an article. Normally we sort of disagree in this case here. I think the three of us ended up uh, in a fairly uh, the same spot regarding uh, much of this article. And we sort of picked on the article, but to the audience, I'm, I hope my goal is that you can hear these arguments and go back and look at, uh, uh, introspectively at articles that are written like this and be able to make those same, you know, make the same articles or look at them and, and weigh our evaluation, weigh the articles evaluation out, and then use that in your workplace, in your, in your home life, et cetera, to be able to shore up your response when people say, eh, those nuclear weapons are not doing anything. They're just sitting in a bunch of silos. We haven't used one since 1947 or whatever the standard answer is. And so, um, no, we're using them every day. Thank you. Thanks to the great, uh, uh, great military presence that's there 24 and seven taking care of you and making sure that others don't want to use their weapons against us and change our lives. So a little different kind of a wrap up because we have a new podcasting format. So let me, Turn it back to Adam. Well, thanks, uh, of course. Oh, Curtis, you got something for me? I have my my, my wrap-up here. Don't forget me. I can't leave without having my final We thing. left We left the wrap-up of Curtis out of the new format. <laughs> it's a bad format. we got to redo that. Okay, so let me say this. On articles like this, and you know, with all due respect to uh, Professor Kern, um, articles like this are generally written by those who are either um, – anti-nuclear, a part of the anti-nuclear community, or they are nuclear minimalists. Um, and, and their ultimate goal is fewer nukes, no matter what, under any circumstance. And I will make arguments to spend more money 
uh, or build more conventional capability um, in order to replace that. And so whenever I read our um, articles that say something like this, where it says the slicker men is useless and, but they don't say, but I would use a different kind of nuclear weapon to fulfill this gap. It tells me that it is really not about the slicker and it is about uh, the nuke. And so um, I, I, I'm always read these kinds of arguments with that, that kind of a, a filter, if you will, to, to see where they are really lying uh, in their, in their arguments. The other thing I would say is there's a fundamental misunderstanding of the adversary. And this is common in, in America in that we just don't take the time to understand our adversary, how they are thinking, and and we continue to project uh, our values and mirror image, um, our uh, goals upon them. They don't have the same goals and uh, and the same whereabout to do it. I have to remind people that you cannot continue to hold these adversaries to the current international rules of decorum when their ultimate goal is to upend that international rule of decorum. They fundamentally disagree with them. So when we talk about, well, we got to have more diplomacy and we need to engage with them more, that's all great, but it isn't going to happen until they find it valuable. And the only way you can do that is by enhancing your credibility through your capability to make them be fearful enough that talking is better than the risk of fighting. And we have not been able to place that fear on their shoulders. It's sitting on our shoulders. And so uh, the last thing I will say is, is that when we talk about credibility, credibility is born of capability. And if we refuse to husband the capability across the spectrum, then how can we claim credibility in these areas? And how can we assure allies that we'll be there when we refuse to arm ourselves with the tools necessary to provide that credibility? So we have to stop talking down these kinds of, even they may be niche uh, weapon systems, but they fill a need. And the ultimate goal is for them to exist, to not be used or I should say employed. Their goal is always to be deployed, but never employed. And if you do it right, yeah, the, 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 the end result is peace and stability. So I'll leave it with that. Over to you, Adam. Well, Jim Curtis, thanks uh, again for a lively discussion. And of course, thanks, lively. thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us on this episode of the NIDS View And as always, we want to remind you to think deterrence. Thank you for listening to the NIDS View. This show is produced under the NIDS Podcasting Network, a division of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. NIDS is a 501c3 organization dependent upon donations to provide this podcast and bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and our national deterrence. You can catch all of our podcasts or provide feedback at thinkdeterrence.com. I would like to thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative The NIDS View.